I'll never forget the first time I found out my uncle was a legendary DJ, influencer, and one of the pioneers of hip-hop. I was watching Brown Sugar, and my mom walked in during the very beginning. You know, the part where folks like Common, Black Dot, Pete Rock, De La Soul, and Russell Simmons are sharing the moment they fell in love with hip-hop. I think it was 1977. There was a rapper named Eddie Chiba, one of the pioneers. That's when she sits down and casually shares, you know he's talking about Uncle Eddie, right? At the time, I had no idea. I've known and loved my uncle for decades. But to date, we've never talked about his experience as one of the pioneers of hip-hop, nor any aspect of the music industry until today. Hey, I'm Alexis, and welcome to The First Year Project, a podcast highlighting the good, the bad, and the integral aspects of the first year experience. This was actually recorded a while ago, but today we have hip-hop pioneer Eddie Chiba on the show, talking about the early years of hip-hop, his experience bringing hip-hop overseas, and how the game is completely different today. If you're a lover of hip-hop, music, and the history of organic movements, definitely make sure to stay tuned. Quick reminder, y'all, stop by firstyearproject.com to check out visuals of today's episode. Also, if you've enjoyed any aspect of the work we're doing here at First Year Project, please make sure to show your love by completing our survey. A link is located in the show notes. Yeah, I just want to say hotter than a blanket heater, a little bit sweeter. My mama calls me Eddie, but this is original Eddie Chiba, Chiba, Chiba on First Year Project with Alexis. So first and foremost, I loved your intro. Can, can you just slow it down for us who, who may not have caught it all? I, I heard hotter. I heard sweeter. It, it sounded dope. Okay. Hotter than a blanket heater. You know, when you're cold in your house, you have a heater. Hotter than a blanket heater, but just a little bit sweeter. And my mama called me Eddie, but my daddy called me Chiba, Chiba, Chiba. Too smooth. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness. So my first question is, why is this the first time we've had this conversation about, like, what you've done and the influence you've had in hip-hop? Well, we've had this first conversation because... You are a little younger, plus you're a family member. That's true. But I've been doing this for years. Yeah. Matter of fact, this year I'm going to be going into the International DJ Hall of Fame, Hip Hop Hall of Fame. That's beautiful. With the Universal Hip Hop. That's beautiful, man. So when exactly did you fall in love with hip hop? Well, we started playing music in 1972. And at the time, it wasn't called hip-hop. We were just uh, disc jockeys, and we never knew it was going to evolve to where it's at now. That Wait, so so it's crazy to me because back then, you didn't even know that it was going to be called hip-hop. So how, how does something like that happen? Like, like, like how, how, does, how is, is that created? Mainly by the sayings we say you just hip, hop, the hip, hip, the hop, the hop, the hop, dip, 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 dop. Hip hop just became like that, and hip hop was a, a, a international thing. It had to do with graffiti, uh, rapping. It was just a whole movement that happened in like the mid seventies. It started, and so like, was this starting, or was it starting from people DJing? Was it starting from people like with what they were wearing and the culture, or, or were like all these different really cool dope things happening all at once? Yeah, correct, all at once. 
has something to do with the way people are wearing, dressing, the the sneakers, the graffiti, and just everything that was happening at time. That seems so organic to me. And now in like 2016, I can't even like think of something that could happen that organically. Like it, it, it's, it's mind boggling to me. So how did you specifically get into DJing and being an artist and all, and all of that? Well, it started in school. I was playing, um, at the time we were growing up, it was like cool in the gang, Crown Heights, Earl, Earth, Wind and Fire, all the groups. But then when I was in a group, when I, I played five instruments, saxophone, clarinet, piano and what? those things. But when you're in a group, if one guy, oh, man, I got to go check on my old lady or I got to this, when you're in a group, then you can't do anything till that person comes back. But when I, I said, let me do DJing, I only had to depend on myself as mm. a disc jockey. Okay, okay. So I didn't even know you played multiple instruments. Yes, I had a scholarship to go to Grambling University. To be in the marching what? band. Wow. So, so what exactly happened with that? Because you always told me that you got your education from uh, the streets. So, right. well, in twelfth grade, I don't want to pat myself on the back. I was making more money than the teachers that were teaching me in high school. DJing. Yeah, I was DJing three, four nights a week at top clubs at that time. So essentially, even though, so are you saying that the scholarship, you, you were like, I'm already doing my thing. I don't need. Okay. Okay. Correct. 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 Okay. So what was the, so, 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 okay. So here's something that is so interesting. What's the progression from in 12th grade, right? You're, you're making more money than the teachers. You're doing your thing, but what's the progression from, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a local DJ in this hip hop game to being one of the most influential and sought out DJs. Um, here in New York, but also like internationally too. Well, I was connected with people that were giving the concerts at Madison Square Garden, like M. Martin Hall and big promoters like that. And I managed to get locked in with them. So, I mean, I was friends with all the street DJs. But like I, who? Like, um, let's say Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, all those people. And then... uh. People like Russell Simmons, who are my good friends, you know, came to see me. And and I worked with all of those people. But also I was able to connect with the clubs that were getting the older people that were spending mm. money to come instead of playing. I didn't have to play in the parks, yeah. in the centers at that time, places where you never knew how the party was going to end at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was that something that was like different for a uh, hip hop DJ? Very different because you played in places in the park or PAL or those centers. You never knew it could be fights and robberies and all type of things going. I was playing in the places where people were coming in nicely dressed. You never had problems. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing some research before Unk, that actually came up and the phrase like disco, like hip hop type of DJ was kind of thrown out there. Like, what are your feelings about how like it's characterized that way? Well, if you look at the real history, disco, Studio 54 and those places like that, if it wasn't for that, there would not even be any hip hop and all those other things. Mm. These are the places where people are partying. The 70s was a big party time where people were having good times, like when Saturday Night Fever came out and all things like that. 
that's when people are having a good time. So I played the the street music and also the music like that was like the top ten hits on the radio and things like that. And that's what we did to do to cross over to the people that were spending money and going okay. out. Okay. I, I definitely hear what you're saying. So in that process, what were some of like the challenges that you came across? Well, the challenges, first of all, there was no rapping or hip-hop being played on the radio. So we're talking about on the radio, in the clubs, like literally anywhere. Right. There was no hip-hop playing. Then some radio station that was doing, the people from the record companies had to play the di- pay the disc jockey mm. to play records and yeah. stuff like that. I don't want to mention any names, but no, this was going yeah. on for quite a few years. I feel like... People always associate that with like the sixties and like the the nineteen fifties in terms of music, but that was still happening in the seventies and the eighties. I'm Hip-hop sure. Hip hop really started in the middle seventies. The first big hit that everyone knew was the Sugar Hill Gang. Mm-hmm. Sugar Hill Gang. We had Grandmaster Flash, but there was we were doing the rapping in the clubs. That's what helped make us very big because people had to come to the clubs. This is yes, right, myself, DJ Hollywood, yeah. Lovebug Starsky, and many disc jockeys in New York, in the Harlem and the Bronx area. So this was way before Sugar Hill Gang, is what you're saying? Well, around that time, I started in 72. Sugar Hill was more like 75, 76. I can't give you an exact date. Okay. But uh, yeah, that's really how I got started. What was your relationship like with uh, DJ Hollywood? Because he's really known as a huge DJ out here, well, too. That's my man, that was my partner. Mm-hmm. We were together. We played together in 371. We were together many years. And also, we were good friends. So we did uh, so many things together. We spent hours together. So we talked music all the time. Yeah. I I, th- I looked up somewhere that you all would maybe do like uh, four shows a night and you DJ at, 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 at one spot and then hop in the car and, and go to the next spot. That's how it was. <laughs> we made our money. You get $150 for an hour here, then we jump and go somewhere else, another $150. We could do three, four places Yeah. in a night. That's correct. So what were some of the other challenges that came across in like this whole journey, and what lessons did you learn from it? Well... I can't say lessons because eventually it crossed over. You see how big hip-hop is now. Yeah. But the disc jockeys that didn't choose, you had to play the music that everyone liked. We had our underground hits that we played in Harlem and the Bronx or mm-hmm. in the parks and centers. But you had to play music you know, that everyone that could relate to. And some of the DJs refused to do that. I mean, also, we played the Tramps. We played some of the Saturday Night Fever music, some of the top 25 on the Billboard. You had to play some of that. So they might call it disco, but that you couldn't get in just playing underground music. Yeah. And then, like, for you personally, like, were there, were there some personal challenges with being like, okay, I want to do music to getting to the point where literally every club in New York was, was trying to get you? Well, I was open to everything. Okay. And eventually, some people from France heard me. Yeah. And they invited me to come to France for three months. I ended up staying there eight to nine years. Wow. And that's where I won the French championship number three in Europe and in the top ten in the world in London at the Hippodrome in 1986. 
So you had to know how to cross over and to deal with all types of people. To me, music was music. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, I had my favorite stuff, things that I liked, but you had to play for whoever you're playing in front of. Okay. Okay. I feel you. Now, how was that experience like literally being like commissioned to do your work internationally? Well, I can't say commissioned, but I mean, you have to play. If if I go to France and now there's a French crowd, I had to learn their music. Mm-hmm. What they do You have to be open to that. Yeah. The same things I'm playing on 125th Street in Harlem. I can't play all that. You have to learn the, the music of the people that you're playing from. You have to know your audience. So I was very open to that. And I learned that quickly. And after that, I knew how to play music. So yeah. it just blew up from there. How was the transition from like, you're a hardcore New Yorker, like through and through, you represent New York. So how was even just the transition of moving over there and like living there your first year? Like, like how was that whole experience like? The hardest thing was trying to find out how to order some eggs and bacon. Croc <laughs> Monsieur and all these things that they do and had to learn the language and the culture. Mm-hmm. You have to do that for the people you're playing for. You have to understand how they were living. Got but it. You know, the, like eight years ago, we know uh, James Brown and Marvin Gaye and things in our culture, but in their culture, who were the French people that they were growing up with? So I had to learn all that, which was pretty easily to do because I got along with people very well. Mm-hmm. And once I learned their culture and learned their music, boy, they were in trouble. It was a wrap. So were you the only hip-hop DJ out there? Or like, what was the demographic From like? From New York at the time, they would just have, like, American groups come over for a weekend or this and that. But I was there. I lived with them. I stayed with them. I was... You had a house out there and everything? I had a house. Wow. Everything. And I lived and played with them. I even had a disc jockey school out there. What? Where I taught them. It was called the Gold Turntable, Platinum Ore. And I taught DJs out there how to play and everything. So it was a very grateful experience that I really loved learning and learned the language. I speak about 80% now. I lost some since then, but. Spit something in, 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 in French really quickly, because this is something that I learned very recently, that you speak French. You got to say something. Qu'est-ce que vous That means, what do you want me to say? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's hard to translate. That's one thing. Rap is hard to transfer the, the yeah. things that we say in, in English into French. You know, but I learned how to be an M- MC and are you fat to gay? Are you tired? Mm-hmm. Just and learn how to speak. To relate to the crowd. Yeah. And once they saw I was there and living with them and among them all the time, they they were more appreciative and more receptive to me because I wasn't just coming in for a weekend or a week. I was there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would you say kept you there? For, so so eight years is, is, a, is a very long time. And I understand like, like you were doing different things, but what were some of the elements of living in France that, that kept you there for so, for so long? Well, I'm not going to say the money, but yes, you got to say the money, right? <laughs> so the money, I ended up doing commercials for like uh, Mercedes Benz. What? Promoting business and Radio France. And you know what I mean? I was living like one of them, so they respected it more. I got along with them. 
I ate with them, I drank with them, they come see me and we could relate. I learned their music. So I knew their favorite hits. Yeah. Like how I knew our favorite hits. Okay. So I knew what to do to get them moving on the dance floor. So you're really like studying people to then create experiences is what it sounds like, which like is dope. Like they say, get in where you fit in, right? Yeah. <laughs> In order to make money, you got to know somebody's ways, you know? For it's sure. like as if you're a hairdresser and somebody only likes one style. You got to learn how to do it the way that people want you to do it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so what year did you move to France? In 83, exactly. 84, I moved there. In 86, I won the first championship. Okay. Very dope. And then we actually never talked about this earlier when we were talking about your experience DJing in New York, but I heard you were making a pretty good amount in New York as well. New York was so at one time I was number one in New York and number one in Paris. How can you top that at the same time? (laughs) Yeah. I'd be working four days a week in Paris and I could come home on the weekends, but I didn't do that every weekend. Yeah. Whenever I get homesick, you know, come home for Uh a minute and go right back. Okay. Okay. Very dope. So, you're, you eventually came back to the States. What year was that in? 91. 91. So, like, what made you come seven back? Seven to eight years. Well, life experiences, change, yeah. and family things. To come and see my parents were getting old to come back and see them. But otherwise, I enjoyed my life in France. But they were trying to sign me to stay there for the rest of my life. But, I mean... I didn't want to do that, but I mean, I had a great time. I love France and England, Belgium, and these places. But I was on tour in France for like a solid eight years. And and you didn't want to stay out there. Well, no, I wanted to come. I missed home. I got a little homesick. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I've never stayed anywhere outside of my hometown, Boston, for eight years. So. Boston? Boston. Okay, oh. let, let's not let's not we get, get into this. No, we get into that. Do you remember when I uh, looked up the uh, stats of the the New York Knicks? What about the stat? Let's go Mets, no. baby. Okay, yeah. okay, 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 okay. Um, so you you coming back to New York? It's 1991. Hip hop is a lot different. Yeah, well, hip hop has, has changed because now the Music, there's hip-hop stations, Hot 97. Um, there's an actual fun. industry. Right. Yeah. Everything had changed. But in Europe, it was different. And plus, by me already being there and in place, and the people knew, like, I'm not one of them, but I'm there with them. Mm-hmm. I had a heads up on anybody that was to come over there. If I wanted to, I could have stayed the rest of my life in front. So what was your actual transition like? Like, from beginning of I'm back in New York to kind of like getting a feel of what the new scene's like. When I came back over here, everyone was into the drug era. Mm. So a lot of the disc jockeys that knew her, they were like strung out, messed up. That's crazy. And then plus the the prices wasn't the same. You know what I mean? What do you mean what by I price? Making. What I mean, like... Uh, when I was in New York before I left, I was getting five hundred a night or one hundred fifty an hour. It was just having me do a guest appearance. But after I was in France, yeah, I mean the, the price was astronomical. So when I came back over, I'm not going to play like these DJs were playing the clubs for like a hundred, a hundred fifty bucks a night. Mm-hmm. I can't 
I'm not going to do that. After I come back from France and I'm a good living. So I, I wanted to leave it alone there. I couldn't accomplish more than I accomplished after I went into the, you know how many DJs in the world? Thousands. I finished in the top 10. This place called the Hippodrome in London. They had the DMC finals with all the top DJs in the world. And the finishing top 10 out of thousands of disc jockey. Yeah. I mean, I could have lived in Europe. They treat you better. Europe is a different thing than New York and the United States. I mean, people go out three, four nights a week and they got money to buy bottles every night. It's different. Mm-hmm. They can they can afford to pay a disc jockey a lot more than they could here in the United States. So did you feel like you got more love out internationally than you did in New York? Because I've actually heard that, it's, especially with, with, like black, with like black artists. Okay. Okay. Financially. Got it. Very, very interesting. So, knowing like the news, like knowing that the situation is different, right? In that moment, is that when you decided, all right, I kind of want to do something else? Yeah, I just, I wanted to come back because my parents were getting older, who have passed away now. And, you know, I made some money. I wanted to come back and, you know, show some love to my family. But as far as the disc jockey thing, it wasn't happening. Because people are so strung out on drugs. I'm talking about like in the early 90s. Yeah, this is so, like straight straight, straight from the 80s. So right. it's, it's interesting because a lot of the listeners here may not even know what you're talking about, to be honest. Well, it's hard to explain. Maybe in our next adventure we'll like, yeah. explain it more. But I don't want to get into that right now. But it was a rough time mm-hmm. from the late 80s to... And a lot of DJs that lost money and mm. the drug situation. It was really bad, kind of. Not just New York, but in all America at that yeah. time. Yeah, no, no, definitely for sure. Um, do you regret it at all? Or or, or, or do you have any regrets? I don't even regret again? anything. Right now, what I do is um, I make appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm getting ready to be, like I told you, into the um, university, Universal Hip Hop Hall of Fame. I make appearances, but I also have a regular job. I, I'm a limousine driver for a big company. I drive a lot of stars around. Yeah. Do, do you want to, I mean, yesterday you, you said that you drove uh, Grace Jones around, correct? Grace Jones. Yeah. And we can name people from here. I even drive Snooky. You know Snooky. Oh, is, Lord. Right? I, I do, unfortunately, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, I mean, a, a huge part of the the first project movement is um, looking at, like, mistakes and looking at um, progression differently. So, what would you say maybe, like, one of the biggest mistakes, and, and not thinking of it in a negative way, but thinking of it in, in a way that this is, there was a situation that helped you grow. What was one of the biggest mistakes that, that you think it, that you maybe ran into and how did it help you grow as a person well personally i don't feel i made any mistakes i did what was best for me okay but if you look at what happened like with tupac and biggie smalls and all that where they got into the situation where people wanted to kill them and things like that mm-hmm. luckily i never got into that got you you know so when i came back into new york you know i didn't try to be on on top shelf again in order to do that, you have to disrespect a lot of people and all that. Even though I knew I could play better than them, mm. I 
just made my appearances and also go back to Europe here and there. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole different life that they weren't able to get into. You had to be into the circle. Got I was already it. into seven, eight years already. Mm-hmm. Is there any part of your life in hip hop that you wish you could do over? Well, the first song I made looking good, um, I wish I could have did a different track. But Landy McNeil was the guy that created the track. He's uh, He was the man that made the music for Cameo. Mm-hmm. But the people that were behind me, they wanted to use his track. So you, you're actually saying that track. you like recorded a, a track with you rapping? Yeah, looking good. Okay. And I wanted to do something more funky with funky beats, but mm-hmm. they were putting up the money, so they wanted... It was more of a disco type track. Yeah. Looking good, shake your body. So I put rap on that. But I could have did something like in the order like what Sugar Hill Gang did. Yeah. Things like that. But the people are putting the money up that want to do that. You got to go with what they say. Do you think that's still an issue in music where like the people who have the money are trying to make the de- these decisions that may not oh, attract now, the now audience? the rappers control it. They can just tell you straight up, yeah. no, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. This is what I want to do. It's, yeah, it's totally has changed now. Yeah. So so it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a huge Nipsey Hussle fan who like he's a, a big, he has like his own like record company, like all money in, no money out. Like owning his masters is like, Literally at, at at the crux of like his identity, he's 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 super big on that. A lot of artists though have found themselves in like three sixty deals where they're not really making any money, or like they're still getting caught in this trap of I either follow what the label tells me to do, or I I I I don't make music. I guess it depends on who you are. Um, as we think about hip hop currently. With access to so much knowledge and so much technology, like today you can make a record on your smartphone. You could produce music and do a set on your computer. How do you think that's impacted hip hop, whether for the for the better or for the well, worse? I don't agree with that because after you make the record, you still have to do appearances live that people want to see. Okay. They want to see what you're doing. So you can't try to get over. Look at um, Millie Vanilli and people like the One Hit Wonders like that. Mm-hmm. Make records. They want to see that you're doing this. Yeah. Uh, so you better be able to back it up. Otherwise, you can get cut out of the game, too, by being a, a fake. Mm-hmm. Do you think technology has helped hip-hop as an industry or hurt it in, in, in some aspects? Technology helps Everything, yeah, yeah. So you can help in the studio, but you have to have the actual talent. To Got start it. With. Got it. I totally hear what you're saying for sure. In terms of your top five MCs, who are they? Share uh, with us. I knew this was share with come share up. with the people. Well, that's hard. <laughs> First of all, I have someone that's like my son. Curtis Blow is like my son. And I love Run DMC. I love LL Cool J. There's a few of them that, I really, and it's a few bad rappers. I don't want to mention their names. I like their stuff too, but it's stuff I don't want to promote or say. <laughs> you know, okay. A couple of things, just you know. But I mean, yeah, you know, and they have their followings. They got to do what they got to do for the crowd that listens to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so you mentioned just now, like Curtis Blow is like your son. Can you? What's your relationship with Curtis Blow? Well, I'll get him started. He used to come see me at a place called Small's Paradise on 135th Street, Seventh Avenue, Harlem, and let him get on the mic. And he was under Russell Simmons. On it, but we knew each other very well. So I opened the door for quite a few rappers. But also I respect Curtis now because he still does his shows. Everything is professional. And he had like one of the top albums in rap that was created with These Are The Breaks and Christmas Rapping. And we still keep in touch very well. And he still does very well on tours. For sure. Christmas Rapping, were you originally going to be on the album? Uh, no. Okay, okay. Um, knowing what you know now... If you were to give your, like, first yourself, so th this is like Eddie first getting into the game of being like, hey, I want to do music, I want to do it in this way, what advice would you give him? Well, I would say personally I wouldn't have done anything different. It went good because doing what I did, that's how the people from France saw me here. Now I was supposed to go there for three months and ended up doing eight years. And... um all the big promoters that got with playing the music that I did play here open to everything. That helped me get, you got to, I couldn't just play all the uptown music and I'm going to play music downtown. And one of the clubs that I started with was Captain Nemo's 48th and 5th. I played Cork and the Bottle. I got a list of clubs you wouldn't imagine mm -hmm. when I started downtown. You had to cross over mm -hmm. in order to get in. You had to get in. You know, people say, I'm just going to play this, I'm just going to play that. You're never going to get anywhere like that. So would you just essentially say, like, keep doing what you're doing? Or, like, what what would you say? I'm doing, do what you have to do to, like, cross over and to appeal to more people. Okay. You know what I mean? You can't just, well, I'm going to get this is what they like on my block. Mm -hmm. Your block is not the one buying tickets to come see you. You know what I mean? You want to get somewhere, you have to do what you have to do. We even saw what Kanye West make up with the with the, who's the young lady, huh? With Taylor Swift, right? Yeah. He's not stupid, right? Now Taylor <laughs> Swift is one of the biggest artists in the world, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. You know what I'm saying, nigga? Well, you don't want to have people like that as your enemies, you know? So got it, got you it. Do what you got. Yeah. How do you think Beyonce got so big once um, when Jay got on one of her records that Crazy in the Rain? Wait, crazy. that was crazy in love. Got... Beyonce was, was, was already bigger on there yeah, too, though. Yeah, she's all right, but yeah. Jay got up big Oh, man. People going to be mad over that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, if you were to give someone trying to get into the music industry... Uh, some words of wisdom. If if you had three words or less to to tell them, what do you think it takes to, I guess, contribute to to that type of culture in a meaningful way? But you only have you only have three words that you can yeah, share with them. Perseverance. Okay. Um. Now, besides perseverance, you have to have. First of all, you got to have talent too. Got to have talent. What do you mean by that? Because my version of talent could be different from your version of talent. Well, talent, you got to know how to rap. 
Got it. You gotta be a rapper without knowing how to rap and how to write. Yeah, and, and right, and but writing stuff that appeals to the people you're trying to appeal to. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether it be black, white, or whatever, country music, whatever. Mm-hmm. You got to write to to the audience you're trying to appeal to. And the third word, do you have a third? I don't know. I guess patience. You got to have some kind of patience to, and keep going at it to get yourself in. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what do you have coming up? I know you mentioned uh, an award ceremony. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm going in the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to be on the outside looking in, but I'll still be there to help certain people okay. and uh, certain events, a lot of charity events to try to help some of the black people in schools and things like that. They even want us to teach classes at some of the universities, Hip Hop 101. Yeah, man. I mean, Nas teaches a class at Harvard. Like, like people, people want this. Right. So you can do it like that, but... I'm not talking about some of the guys that's doing it's hard because some of the the people that's really making the money, the ones that are doing the gangster rap and the cursing and stuff like that, that's what's selling even more. Mm. I mean, one thing that I love about technology is I feel like I have so much access to different type of music. So I think gangster rap is an element, but there's also like this like neo soul, like eclectic type of thing going on, like with selection and other different music collectives that is just like really, really dope. So I would say don't count it out for sure. I'm not counting anything out. There you go. These guys are making more money than we've ever seen. Yeah, man. I've been doing their thing, but I mean, that's not for me. You gotta go by your era. Very true. It's the same thing like looking at Michael Jordan in basketball, look at Steph Curry now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's different things. Michael Jordan was the greatest for his era. Steph Curry may be the greatest right now. Things change. So, for sure. You, know, you got to do what you have to do with the times. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been appreciative. This was fun. A little shout out to all my hip hop friends and artists. And everything, y'all keep staying in there, okay? And uh, hopefully I can get you on this podcast one day, okay? Let's do it. I'm excited. You've done a great job. Thank you, Uncle. That's my niece, (laughs) y'all. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today, y'all. Major shout-outs to... DJ Eddie Chiba for being on today's episode. Additional shout outs to Andrea and Creator K for our logos. Production and editing on today's episode were both done by myself. Major thank yous to those who have completed the survey and have shared it. We really, really appreciate your support and your love. If you haven't yet done so, um, please make sure to get the link in the show notes or via our Instagram and our Twitter. This support will really help to continue the show, and we just thank you uh, so much in advance for taking care of that. Once again, you can see visuals, you can see episodes, and other information about First Year Project on firstyearproject.com. Once again, firstyearproject.com. We'll see you next week, guys. Peace.